So, back in 2002, I was hired as the young adult pastor for a growing Bible church that had uh, no official young adult ministry. Uh, they had children's ministry, youth ministry, but they were seeing kind of this growing, burgeoning area and realized we need someone to help shepherd these young adults. So they advertised this position, I found out about it, I applied, and lo and behold, I ended up getting hired. So as a young adult pastor, it meant I was to be the shepherd for those out of high school, so college age, up through mid-30s. Well, to, in order to help start kind of this college ministry, I, I needed to know people on the different colleges. And so I started going to Kirkwood Community College, to Mount Mercy, to Coe, and, and trying to build relationships in these various places. What I began to discover was that there were a number of young adults at these colleges who were Christians, but they felt that there wasn't anything in Cedar Rapids that was really designed for them. And so I found out that on Thursday nights, a bunch of them would jump into a car and either drive south to Iowa City and participate in a ministry known as 24-7, or they'd jump in a car and drive an hour north to UNI and participate in a ministry known as BASIC. Now, it didn't take long for me to be introduced to the leaders of 24-7 and BASIC, and I found out they were some amazing, fantastic individuals. I, I, and so there was a part of me that was thrilled that these young adults, these college students, wanted to be impacted by such Christ-centered ministries and such great leaders. But there was another part of me that was sad. Sad that we lived in the second largest city in Iowa, and yet these young adults felt that they had to drive up to an hour away to find something that seemed to understand them, could speak to them, and to disciple them. And so a dream began to grow in my heart to start something right in our city. As I began to have this dream, I started sensing, this is not supposed to just be through my church, though. This is supposed to be citywide, because this isn't just an issue for my church. This is something being seen all across Cedar Rapids. So I began to invite various individuals that I knew and trusted to be a part of this. One of those individuals was a guy by the name of Dennis. Dennis was an absolutely incredibly gifted leader. Dennis was a couple years out of college, and he was very, very gifted musically. He could have led us in worship on Thursday nights. He, someone else did, but Dennis was a part of the team. He, he could have been the key leader. Dennis was an incredible communicator. He could have stepped up on any Thursday night and, and been our primary teacher and communicator. He, he was also very gifted organizationally. He, he, if we had wanted to start like small groups ministry, Dennis would have been the guy to keep it all together and organized. Uh, he was just very, very gifted. So I would have been a fool to not invite Dennis to be a part of our leadership team for a ministry that ended up being known as Watershed. Well, a few weeks later, I find out Dennis has gone and done lunch with one of our other leaders. And I thought, great, like he's getting to know the, the other leaders. That, that's fantastic. A week later, I found out he did lunch with another leader. Awesome. And then he did lunch with a third leader. And that third leader was kind of like my right-hand guy in the starting of Watershed. And he comes to me and says, Aaron, I don't think you know what's going on. Dennis is meeting with these various leaders, having conversations for how to remove you as the key leader and have someone else take over. Now, maybe you have a tougher hide than I do. Something like that may have just rolled off of you, and you're like, oh, that's too bad that he's doing that, and you would have just kept on going. Or maybe you're more spiritually mature, and, and you would say, 
you know what? It's not about me. If watershed's going to be watershed, it's about young adults meeting Jesus, and if I'm not the right person to lead that, then maybe we should find the right person. But I don't have nearly that tough of a hide, and I was not that spiritually mature. And so I was hurt. I'm thinking, this is my dream, and I invited you to be part of my leadership team, and now you're going and trying to steal it from me. I felt betrayed. You ever felt betrayed? You ever had a good close friend who you thought you could tell a secret in confidence and then they go and share it with someone else? Or maybe you have a classmate or a coworker that you thought was a good teammate on the project and then they go and take all the credit for the work. It hurts, doesn't it? When you find out that he or she was unfaithful, when you find out what they're doing behind the scenes, when they send you that email, to be betrayed hurts. And hurts deeply. Now what I want you to imagine. It isn't just that best friend, a former significant other, or even a fellow ministry leader that betrayed you. I want you to now imagine that pretty much everyone in your life betrays you. For Jesus, he did not have to imagine. Because today we're going to see that is basically what happened to him. Now typically when Christians talk about the uh, uh, betrayal of Jesus, they inevitably think of Judas Iscariot. We will look at some of Judas' story today. However, what we're going to discover is that Judas is not the only person to have betrayed him. In fact, we're going to see that the scriptures teach that there are at least four categories of betrayers. And we're going to see where we fall. So if you brought a Bible, I invite you to open it up to Mark chapter 14. If you are a first-time guest with us and don't have a Bible, we're going to put the scripture up on the screen so you'll be able to follow right along with us. Uh, uh, we just really encourage you, get a Bible into your hands. Uh, we don't care if that's a digital Bible on your phone or if you want to get a paper copy, just get yourself a Bible. So either stop by our resource table and pick up a copy of the Bible there and make that your Bible. Uh, I took some of those Bibles. I started a, a Bible study for the uh, wrestling team at Wartburg and I uh, took some Bibles and a couple of them didn't have Bibles. And so we just gave it to them. So we'd love to just give a Bible to you. Or if you want, download a Bible to your phone and that way wherever you go with your phone, you've always got a Bible there with you and you can use that on Sunday and Monday and every day. Um, last week when Patrick Wright was here teaching, he had joked that he was very ADD. And so that explained why he jumped all around Galatians 3. And he said, if you really prefer your Bible taught in a more linear fashion, come back next week because Aaron will be teaching. <laughs> well, I need to apologize to Patrick because I'm going to inevitably make him a liar. We are going to be jumping all around Mark 14. So you're going to need to just keep your Bibles open and, and stay there because we're going to jump all over the place in it. Now, I said that there are four categories, at least four categories of betrayers. Today, we're going to see three of those. Right? The three we're going to see in Mark 14 is we're going to see the blind betrayer, the person who's completely blind to what's right there in front of them and it causes them to betray Jesus, we're also going to see an unrepentant believer as well as a repentant believer. But the one that we don't see in Mark 14, I would argue is actually the most common. That's why I'm putting it number one. The most common type of betrayer is the unknowing betrayer. 
Who is the unknowing betrayer? Me. And you. And pretty much anyone who has human DNA. The scriptures teach that God created humans back in Galatians, I mean, back in Galatians, in Genesis. When he created humans, he created them in his image. Meaning, he put like the idea of his will and personality and, and intellect and, and all of this in humans. Just to differentiate them from the rest of creation. However, in Genesis 3, we see Adam and Eve, the only two humans, break the only rule that God gave them. And in that moment when they betrayed God, sin entered the world. And every single human born sense is a betrayer. When the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to the church in uh, Rome, and, and feel free to stay there in, in Mark, uh, we're coming there soon. But in Romans chapter 3, Paul sums up the teaching from what we as Christians call the Old Testament. Jewish people would just call it the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh. But he sums it all up in Romans 3, and he starts it this way. Quoting from the Old Testament, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And while I'm stopping there, Paul does not. He continues on, verse after verse after verse, showing that everyone is a betrayer to the image of God in them. And he sums it all up this way in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So whether we want to admit it or not, we are all betrayers. Now, most of us, we're not the shake your fist in God's face kind of betrayer. But many of us have these selfish moments where we sin. We deny, we betray the image of God that is in us. And then that unknowing betrayal oftentimes becomes intentional. We begin to shake our fist in God's face. And those are the three that we see in Mark 14. The first shake your fist in God's face kind of, of betrayal are the blind betrayers. We notice them in verses 1 and 2. Uh, three weeks ago when we came back to the book of Mark, we'd taken several months off, we came back to chapter 14. I said we were going to skip verses 1 and 2 because we were going to come back to them today. So now I'm fulfilling my word to you. All right, so verses 1 and 2. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. The chief priests and scribes were some of the most prominent citizens of their culture. When you lived in a very religious culture, where the religion drove the culture, your religious leaders would therefore be some of the most prominent influential people. But as priests, as scribes, their role was to represent the people to God, but it was also to help bring God to the people. And part of the way God wanted these priests to show him to them was to teach the law, the Tanakh, their scriptures. 
And so many of these chief priests had at least the Torah memorized. The Torah was the first five books of the, the Bible, Math, uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? What we call the Pentateuch, they saw that as the Torah. That was the law, and they had that memorized. Many of them, especially scribes who, who wrote down the scriptures every day, they even had the rest of the, the Tanakh memorized, that's significant because in February, we did a series all about the Bible. During that series, we saw that in the Hebrew Scriptures, there are 350, well, actually more than 350, prophecies about the Messiah. And Jesus fulfilled them. That's why we also saw during that series that in the Gospels, Jesus said that the Tanakh was all about him. He, he quotes from the law and the prophets saying they all point to him as the Messiah. So these chief priests... These scribes who know this scripture so well to help bring God to the people should have been the first to recognize that right there is the Messiah. But they don't. Uh, Monday night, uh, Sam and I uh, met via phone to, to talk about today because he was choosing all of the songs and being our worship leader today. And as we were talking through these two verses... He says, man, it's almost like they're, they have blinders on. You know those horses that, that as they travel down the road, they put the blinders on so that all they can do is see what's right in front of them. He says, it, it's almost like that. Like they just had these blinders on because they could only see it one way. Jesus did not teach the way they taught. Jesus did not approach life the exact same way. Jesus didn't go through their schooling system the way they thought he should have. And Jesus seemed to be drawing a crowd. He was drawing people to him and he was beginning to have influence and taking some of that influence away from them and so these priests felt that this jesus wasn't the messiah to fulfill judaism he was this dude who was ruining judaism now in mark we've already seen them try to cancel jesus mark chapter 12 we saw at least three different attempts and they failed miserably and so now because they can't cancel him they decide they have to eliminate him and they begin to put together this plot to kill Jesus. Now, you might want to push back on me and say, well, Aaron, he said they're blind. So they would be in that first category. They would be unknowing. Well, I'll push back and say, yeah, they may not have known he was the Messiah, even though they should have known. But they know exactly what they're doing. Think about it. They are beginning to plot how to hand over a Jewish man to the Roman authorities to kill him. These priests are supposed to help people draw close to God, and now they're looking to how to get rid of someone who they think is threatening their faith in God. That is a betrayal, whether Jesus is the Messiah or not. They were blind betrayers. Next, we see the unrepentant betrayer. Uh, we've already looked at verses 3 through 9, so skip down to verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Back in verses uh, 1 and 2, we saw um, the chief priests, 
as they were putting together their plot, had decided not to do it during the feast. Uh, two weeks ago, we saw that that feast was the Passover. Uh, the Passover meal was the kickoff to a week's celebration known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was traditional for the Jewish people to leave their homes all around the countryside of Israel and to come to Jerusalem for the feast. And so they decide, let's not kill Jesus during this week because he's become popular. And if we kill him right now, then we're going to have a riot on our hands. So let's let everyone go home. Things will calm down. We'll secretly arrest Jesus, get him killed. And because we don't have the internet yet, it'll take a long time for word to spread to the countryside and people won't know it for weeks or months. Now, if you're familiar with the crucifixion story, you know that about 12 hours after Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples, he ends up being killed. So is, is this one of those contradictions that the skeptics tell us about or all over the scriptures? No. You see, they may have been putting together a plan, but an opportunity came before them, something that made them pivot, something that made them realize this is great. If we don't take this chance, we may not get this chance again. So we're going to take the risk. We're going to go ahead and do this during the Passover because we may not get a chance like this again. And what was that chance? Judas. Judas, one of the 12, goes up to the chief priest and says, hey, what would you give me to hand him over to you? In Matthew chapter 26, we find out that they pay him 30 pieces of silver. That is in accordance with scripture. Out of the book of Zechariah, it prophesied that the Messiah would be handed over for 30 pieces of silver. So Judas agrees to the terms begins to put together the plot for how and when to hand Jesus over. Now, I was very surprised when I found out what Dennis was doing behind the scenes. Jesus, though, is not surprised a bit. He knows exactly what's happening, and he knows exactly who is going to betray him. Skip down to verse 17. Right here, the, the Passover meal is about to begin. Peter and John have gone. They've made the preparations and here's what occurs. And when it was evening, he, Jesus, came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating. Keep in mind, we talked about this for the Passover. They have a low table. It's not like our tables where we sit on chairs and our feet are down. They're at a low table reclining on pillows. So they're reclining at the table and they're eating their meal. Jesus speaks up. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now, in the other Gospels, we, we have a little more clarification. Jesus has said there, he, he's the man who dips his bread with me. And he ends up handing the bread to Judas. And Judas at that moment is like, is it I? And Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, it's you. You know, I know. Go do what you must do. And at that point in the meal, Judas leaves. And, and what's amazing is the other disciples in that moment don't realize that it is Judas because they thought so highly of Judas. 
Judas was considered one of the best and the brightest among the 12. I mean, that's why they entrusted him with all of the money. And, and, and so they thought, oh, maybe he's going out to, you know, give some money as part of our Passover meal. You know, so it did not even fathom. Jesus says, yep, it's the one who dips his bread with me. And Jesus hands the bread to Judas. And then Judas leaves. And they're like, nah, can't be him. It, it might actually be me. What in the world would cause Judas to go through with this? I, I, I will be honest. I don't think I could do it. If, if you know the story, you know that in John 13, at this point in the meal, Jesus gets up, takes off his outer tunic, wraps a towel around him, and goes around washing the feet of his disciples. Typically, at a, a meal like this, if you have guests over, you would have a servant wash the feet of the, your guests because they, they just wore open sandals. And, and so the, the dust of the, the you know, dirt roads would be all over their feet, and you're going to recline on these pillows at these low tables, so your feet's got to be right near someone's head. So what a nice kindness to wash their feet for them. And yet here's Jesus, the Messiah, this guy who's done all these miracles, who's taught like no one else, and he's now going around washing feet. You guys realize that this means that if we as Riverwood Church are going to be people who live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved, it means we might have to go and serve some people who might betray us. I think if I were Judas and I see Jesus washing my feet, seeing such kindness, I, I couldn't do it. Plus, he just said, it would be better if that man had never been born I mean, I've seen this dude over the last three years heal the sick, cause the lame to walk, the blind to see. He's fed 5,000 people with nothing but a little boy's lunch. He called a storm with nothing but a word. And he even raised people from the dead. I don't think I'm messing with that dude. So when he says, yeah, it'd be better if you'd not be born, I think I'd be going, okay, I'm chickening out. Not going to do it. 30 pieces of silver, not worth it. And yet Judas goes through with it. After the meal, Jesus and his disciples make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to talk about that a little bit uh, later. But skip all the way down to verse 43. Jesus has been praying. Uh, in fact, in the book of Luke, it tells us that he is so stressed that the blood capillaries in his forehead burst, and it, the blood mixes with his sweat, so it looks like he's sweating blood. He is so stressed. And yet he says, not my will, but your will be done. And then he goes to the disciples, and basically he's like, all right, guys, you've fallen asleep. I know it's the middle of the night, you know, 3 a.m., but come on, get up, because my betrayer is coming. Then we come to verse 43. And immediately, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, the betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi! And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. Can you imagine the gall to walk up and greet Jesus as though you haven't seen him for a couple of months, when in actuality it's just been a couple of hours, and you greet him with a gesture of friendship, a gesture of kindness, a gesture of intimacy, a kiss on the cheek. It's our equivalent of the, the handshake, the, the, the hug. Hey, how you doing? Come on in here. Good to see you. 
And then that's the guy they seize. And Judas, in that moment, becomes the unrepentant betrayer. Now, if you know the story, you might want to say, well, Aaron, in Matthew 27, it says that Judas ended up going back to the chief priest and says, I was wrong. He's an innocent man. And the chief priest responded, well, that's not our problem. And Judas throws the silver coins back at them and runs. So you might want to say, well, Aaron, it sounds to me like he was pretty repentant. No, don't confuse admittance with repentance. Just to admit wrongdoing is not to truly repent. To try to right the wrong is repentance. I mean, if you have a husband who gets caught in an affair and admits to it, he hasn't repented. It's when he breaks off the affair, goes to counseling, it ends up you know, stepping down from any leadership positions he might have. He ends up you know, doing what he can to right the wrong, to rebuild trust. That's repentance. And we don't see Judas do anything like that. He does not rush back to the disciples and say, guys, I'm so sorry. He does not rush in before Pilate and say, I handed him over and I was wrong. He's innocent. No, instead, the scriptures show us that Judas ends up in his shame, wanting to escape the shame as quickly as possible, and he goes and he commits suicide. He was an unrepentant betrayer. Now, there's one more betrayer we need to see, and he's actually a little bit similar to Judas, but he does one key thing differently, and that is we actually see him truly repent, and his name is Peter. Go back to the Passover meal there in Mark 14, and uh, go to verse 26. As the meal has ended, uh, traditionally Jews would sing a hymn to conclude, and so that's what we see happening in verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now Peter said to him, Well, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now, in the book of Mark, we've seen Jesus a couple of times clue his disciples in to the fact that he's going to die. So after they've celebrated this Passover meal, saying their hymn, they're heading now to the Garden of Gethsemane located in the Mount of Olives. And on the way, Jesus basically starts saying, um, hey guys, I've been telling you, but, but it's here. Tonight, tonight's the night. And, and, and when this moment happens, don't feel bad, but you're all going to abandon me. Well, Peter, man, he's a manly man. I will never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus kind of shakes his head, just looks at Peter, and is just like, dude, but before the night's over, you're going to even deny you know me, and you're going to do it three times. And we're not going to take the time to read it. But if you want, you can read Mark, uh, Mark 14, 66 through 72. And you'll see that exactly that happens. Three times Peter has someone ask him, question him, wait, aren't, aren't you with Jesus? And each and every time he's like, what? No, no, 
<laughs> no, I, I'm not with Jesus. In fact, in fact, I've never even met the dude. And then a croaster cries out, morning has come, and Peter realizes what Jesus said has come true. He even has denied that he even knows Jesus. And verse 72 tells us that he weeps as he runs away. Now, there are some similarities between Judas and Peter. And for some of you, that might be uncomfortable to consider because we have churches named after Peter. There's no church named St. Judas. Right? That, that, that would be like the, the worst thing you could possibly do. And yet, they were both one of the 12. They both probably talked a big game. They both were impressive. They both were key leaders. And they both, in a sense, abandoned him and betrayed him. Now, yes, Judas's betrayal is way worse. I mean, Judas handed Jesus over to be killed. Peter was simply just a really, really, really bad friend. But, but still, they both denied Jesus. The biggest difference, though, is that whereas we see Judas try to escape his shame as quickly as possible through suicide, we see Peter handle his shame very differently. In his shame, we find out in John 21 that Peter goes back to fishing. That's where Jesus called him out of to become a disciple. So I think Peter thought, well, I'm a bad disciple. I just denied the Messiah. So I may as well go back to what I am good at, to what I know. I'm going to go back to fishing. And in John 21, we see Peter in a boat with some of the other disciples, and they're fishing. And suddenly the resurrected Christ comes to them on the shore. And when they realize who it is, here is what Peter does. John 21, verse 7. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Now, the way the ESV translated it, it sounds like he's like trying to escape. Like, oh no, he's here! And he like jumps out of the boat and he's like trying to go away. It's the exact opposite. He has taken off his outer tunic because he's working. All of a sudden, they said, hey, that guy, it's Jesus. He grabs his coat, puts it on, and jumps in the water to swim towards Christ. If he is still filled with shame, he's jumping out the other side of the boat. Or he's like, no, 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 guys, we're going to paddle away. No, stay back. He can't even wait, though, for the boat to pull the net in with the fish, for them to get it turned around, for them to just make the 100 yards in. He jumps in the water to swim to Jesus because he is repentant. In fact, they bring the fish to the shore and they, they cook some of it for breakfast. And then Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, let, let's go for a walk. And you can read in John 21 how they have this walk down the beach. And Jesus asks Peter three times, hey, Peter, do you love me? And every single time, Peter says, yes. Because He's repentant. Now, you do not have to have a seminary degree or a rocket science degree or even have aced the ACTs to even realize where I'm going with the sermon. It's pretty evident. I started this whole entire sermon saying that we all fall into the first category, the most common category. We are unknowing betrayers. But we are betrayers nonetheless. 
the question is, where do you land then? Do, are, are you going to go be a blind betrayer, an unrepentant betrayer, or a repentant betrayer? I think too oftentimes in our betrayal of the image of God in us, we think that therefore makes God hate us. But the exact opposite is true. Because just two chapters after Paul defines what the Old Testament teaches about, about the doctrine of, of humanity, about how we are all sinners, he then says, but it is God who came for us. In fact, he says in Romans 5, while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. So he is not repulsed by your betrayal. He's not like me with Dennis, hurt and wounded. He sees it, and in his hurt, he comes to you and dies your death and pays your penalty. So my question to you then is, when you sin, when you betray, where do you turn? Do you turn to self-flagellation? In other words, do you beat yourself up? Do you beat yourself up mentally? Emotionally? Do you beat yourself up even physically? Do you try to ignore the shame? You, you, you try to numb it through substances, through food, through entertainment. Do you just try to even go about as if, ah, nothing happened? Just pretend. Or do you jump out of the boat, make an absolute messy fool of yourself to swim to Jesus and fall upon his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy? When you betray, where do you turn? What I want to do is I want to just create space for us to turn to him. I'm going to invite Sam to come up and just play quietly on the keyboard. What we're going to do is we're just going to take one minute to silently pray, to confess. This is your chance to jump out of the boat and swim to Jesus. So, Salem, would you just lower the lights? Uh, and I'm just going to allow you to have a minute of silent prayer. We're going to come out of this silent prayer of confession into a corporate prayer of confession. If you are a follower of Jesus, I'm going to invite you to participate with us, to read that prayer aloud, because it isn't just us as individuals. We are a church body. We are a church family. And so may we corporately pray this together. So after silent prayer and then a corporate prayer confession, we'll move into our time of communion. So Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would hear the prayers of your people, that those of us who need to confess, whether it be specific sins or general sins, that we would bring them to you, that we would realize we have betrayed you, we've betrayed your work through the cross, we've betrayed that we even know you at times. And so I pray, Father, that you would do right now what you need to through your Holy Spirit in our hearts, helping us to draw forth the words that we need to say so that we might swim to Jesus and fall upon his grace and his mercy.
Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are capable of hearing all of our prayers at the same moment. That as you heard all those different voices, you heard each and every word, you heard each heartbeat, you heard each longing. And I thank you that in you, there is forgiveness. I thank you for your grace, for your mercy. I thank you, Jesus, for doing what we needed done. And instead, you took it for us. But God, you have also put us in a church family. And so, Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to come together and corporately pray together. So with every eye now open, looking at the screen, let us pray this prayer. Almighty God, we acknowledge and confess that we have sinned against you, betraying you through our thoughts, words, and deeds. We have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Deepen within us our sorrow for the wrong we have done and the good we have left undone. Lord, you are full of compassion and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. There is always forgiveness with you. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Bind up that which is broken. Give light to our minds, strength to our wills, and rest for our hearts. Speak to each of us and let your word abide with us until it has wrought in us your holy will. Amen. On Monday when Sam and I were uh, talking about today and, and he was trying to decide what songs we ended up talking about the two criminals that were crucified next to Jesus. Uh, in, in Mark, he just simply mentions that, that the criminals were, were mocking Christ. It's like he was standing afar seeing this. But Luke gives us a, a closer picture and helps us hear the conversation that happened. So this is from Luke 23, starting in verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As we were talking through those four different areas uh, of, of betrayers, Sam was pointing out that these two criminals almost like represent Judas and Peter. That, that the, the one, he, he's throwing insults upon Christ. Here he is receiving the due penalty for his crimes. And instead, he's like, oh, if you're the Christ, save yourself and us. He just wants to escape. He's not repentant. And yet the other criminal hurls back, says, do you not fear God? Like, dude, come on. We're being punished for what we've done. This man here has done nothing wrong. 
And then, did you hear the faith of that second criminal? He looks at Jesus, who's sitting there, not sitting there, hanging there on a cross, dying, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Like, he still has faith, whether it is Jesus actually going to come off the cross or he's going to rise again from the dead. All he knows is that you are God. You will be king. You will be over your kingdom. And when you come into that kingdom, I just ask that out of your mercy, out of your grace, you would just simply remember me. He's repentant. And then did you hear what Jesus said? Today, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, you're forgiven. As we come to the communion elements, we do so recognizing that that wafer is Jesus' body. That juice is his blood. And it was shed so that we could be forgiven and we could come into paradise. If you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know I'm thrilled you're here. I'm so glad you're here. But I'm going to just ask that you very respectfully and kindly not go to this table. You see, it's really not about these elements. It's about what those elements represent. What I would rather long for you today is that you would give your life to Jesus. You would become that repentant betrayer. That you would take those words we just read and you would make them real in your heart. That you would take this next moment to surrender your life to him. But if you are already a follower of Jesus, if, if you identify as that Christian, the one who knows that Jesus died on the cross and that's my identity, that's the core part of who I am, then I invite you to come. That you would be like that second thief on the cross and you would take these elements and remember that Jesus has come into his kingdom and he has remembered you by dying for your sin. So may you right now fall upon the grace and mercy of Christ. May you come and worship him, thanking him for what he has done. May you do this in remembrance.